I'm excited about this week. There are big things afoot in the world of the Israelites. Not only are they moving into the promised land, but it's not an exaggeration to say that the balance of power in the world is undergoing a tectonic shift. Let's uh, step back a bit and look at the broader timeline to get a feel for where we are in the world events. So as you know, trying to place these ancient stories in a particular time frame is difficult, partly because the stories are often composites that have been massaged and edited to fit the author's narrative purpose. So chances are really good that any given story might include elements spanning 200 years or so, kind of all mashed together. So that's why we don't spend a whole lot of time trying to nail down the details. The details are not the important part to the writers, and they shouldn't be the important part to us. Last time we talked um, about this timeline was in class 12, when we were trying to identify who might have been the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And if you remember, it was a little squishy. Back in class 12, we said the Exodus was often pinned to about 1440 BCE. That's, that's from people counting backwards from the reign of King David. They count backwards using biblical stories and they get 1440 BCE. But the evidence in the stories themselves about the Exodus fit Thutmose the first better, which would put Exodus at an earlier date around like 1490 BCE instead of 1440. So even in that lesson, we could see wiggle room of about 50 years. And some scholars move the dates 100 years or so in either direction. I mean, there's all kinds of arguments forever and ever about this. So Thutmose I was who we picked for at, at 1490, and he's followed by several pharaohs in quick succession, including the famous Hatshepsut, who was apparently the real power behind the throne in this period. So in 1479, uh, his grandson, Thutmose III, comes to power. Thutmose III would therefore be the pharaoh during the 40 years the Israelites wandered in the desert. So for the purpose of putting a pin in the timeline, let's say Exodus was around 1490 BCE and the 40 years of wandering ended somewhere around 1450 BCE. But the entry and conquest of the promised land fits historical events and genealogical information that places it in the 13th century BCE that I've marked as you are here on this timeline. So, you know, it's like they come out in 1450 and then all of a sudden we're in 1300 to 1200. So you can see there's mushiness in the dates when you try to pick out details of the stories and match them to what's going on in the world. So you have to give or take one or 200 years either way. Historical dates and biblical dates don't start to converge and solidify until around 1000 BCE. But even then, they stay soft uh, as the biblical writers massage the details to fit the narrative at hand. And as you know, the various genealogies in the Bible stories don't match up chronologically with the historical events in the Bible stories either. I mean, just inside the Bible, it's stories in themselves. We ran across that earlier when we studied Moses' genealogy. So it's a fact of life when you study the Bible. So just relax about that. 
the exact timeline is not the point of the story. Just know that as best we can tell, the Israelites enter the promised land sometime between 1300 and 1200 BCE, just as the Bronze Age melts into the Iron Age. But first, before we set foot in the promised land, I want to back up to the 1450s, near the end of their 40 years in the, in the wilderness. Some important things happened in the world while the Israelites were wandering around in the desert. Egypt, as you know, is the world power at the moment. And Syria, where the Hittites are currently in power, is one of Egypt's vassal states. But things are getting dicey. There's a city named Kadesh up there. Not to be confused with Kadesh Barnea, where the Israelites camped in the desert down south of the Negev. The Kadesh I'm talking about here is on the southern border of Syria, just north of the Promised Land. Well, in 1457 BCE, probably near the end of the time the Israelites are wandering around in the desert, the Hittites rebel against Egypt. Knowing that Egypt will attack them, they get together with the local king of Megiddo, and raise a huge army, the largest raised in this region to date, something like 15,000 men and 1,000 chariots. So stop and think a moment. If 15,000 men is an army worthy of such historical note that we still have the records of it, then there is probably zero chance that there were actually 600,000 warriors in Israel as is recorded in Numbers 1. I'm not saying the Bible is wrong. I'm just pointing out some historical facts and asking you to realize that the biblical authors were making a point about Abraham's descendants being numerous. And like ancient writers are wont to do, they have likely based their writing on stories that have grown over time, kind of like the size of the fish that got away. It's their point that is important, not the accuracy of the counts. So anyway, this particular story I'm telling you is not about the Israelites. It's about the rebellion of the Hittites against Egypt. Thutmose III rallies an army of 15,000 men and 1,000 chariots of his own to crush the Hittite rebellion. But instead of waiting for the Hittites to march towards him, he makes his first grave strategic error. He decides to march his forces north. This allows the Hittites to set up their defenses at Har Megiddo. Har means mountain or hill in Hebrew. So Har Megiddo means the hill of Megiddo. Not only are the Hittites well fortified, but Thutmose has to drag supplies and food and livestock the entire 200 miles or so. One source indicates he has to carry 14 tons of grain and 25,000 tons of water loaded on ox-drawn carts. Yikes. So here's a topographical view of the area. Just to orient you, here's the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And here's the coastal plain that has that big, one of the big main roads passing through it. You'll remember that Megiddo is here, where the lowlands along the coast dead in into this mountain range. There's a very narrow pass here through the mountains that comes up behind Megiddo. This is the Aruna Pass. The fort of Megiddo is therefore well protected by these mountains and that tiny pass at its back. And it sits high above all the surrounding plains to the north and east and even to the west. So as he approaches Har Megiddo, Thutmose has to decide 
whether to attack from the vast plains on the north and east or whether to try to sneak his army through the Aruna Pass. Here's a view from the top down. You can see how long the pass is, and you can see the vast Jezreel Valley that surrounds the fort at Megiddo. If you attack from any other direction, they'll see you coming long before you get there. Just to give you an idea of scale, here's an, a picture I took of the Jezreel Valley from the top of Har Megiddo. You see how vast that valley is. You can see everything for miles. Well, Thutmose is 24 years old, and he's been pharaoh since he was two years old. He thinks he's invincible. He cannot resist the idea of sneaking up on Megiddo through the Aruna Pass. His generals are horrified, but Thutmose insists he is dead set on a surprise attack and believes time is of the essence. The 15,000 Egyptian soldiers have to go through the pass single file, one at a time. It's so narrow. The first ones begin to emerge from the pass before the last ones even enter it. It takes them seven hours to make it through. And the Hittites guarding the rear flank of Megiddo are indeed caught by surprise. They break ranks and run for the fort. But then things start to go horribly wrong for Thutmose. The Egyptian soldiers fall on the Hittite camp, vacated camp, rear camp, and begin looting it. Their generals are unable to drive them forward to press the attack on the main body of the Hittite army because loot is how soldiers were paid back then. So the advantage of a surprise attack is completely lost. And by the time the troops are rallied and the attack is pressed, the Hittites are ready in the fort of Megiddo, high on top of the hill. This forces Egypt to press a siege that lasts seven months. Here's a model of the fort. You can see what a big deal it is. The Egyptians are finally victorious, but the cost is huge. This battle of Megiddo is one of the most famous battles in all of ancient history. It is well attested by detailed Egyptian records. What follows is several years of incursions by Egypt to make sure the rebels stay under Egyptian control. This continues until 1435 BCE, when a brief 20-year peace with Egypt is finally achieved. I tell you this for several reasons. First, to give you an idea of the balance of power between the Hittites in Syria and Egypt, and how the promised land is caught in the crossfire, and also to introduce you to Megiddo. This mountain and the surrounding plains seem to be tailor-made for large battles. This is one of many famous battles that will occur here. The last such battle referred to in the Bible is the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation. Armageddon is nothing more than our anglicized word for Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. This back and forth push and pull between Egypt and the various Hittite and Canaanite powers is ongoing throughout Israel's history in the Promised Land. But these are not the only world powers in play. The Hittites are threatened on their eastern borders as well. The Assyrians with an A, Hittites are in Syria with an S. The Assyrians with an A are a completely separate nation. They're steadily rising as a world power. They too will make incursions into Canaan. The entire Mediterranean region is in upheaval. Over the next couple hundred years or so, there are mass migrations. The one with the most direct impact on the Israelites 
is the migration of the Sea Peoples from Crete to the coastal plains of Palestine. These people are the Philistines, and they established their nation along the southern coast of the Promised Land. Their five major cities, Ashdod, Ekron, Ashkelon, Gath, and Gaza, are referred to frequently in the Hebrew Bible. The Philistines are, for the most part, bitter enemies of the Israelites. What's interesting is that they're not named in the lists of Canaanite nations to be destroyed by Joshua. If you think back through Genesis and Exodus, etc., every time, you know, they list the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Blahs and the Blahs, the Philistines are not mentioned. In fact, Judges 3 tells us the Lord leaves the Philistines for the next generations to fight. They end up having a major role to play later on. They remind me of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, the evil character who ends up saving the life of the hero. But that's a story for another day. It's into this seething cauldron of rival city-states and warring empires that the Lord is calling Israel. How in the world will the Lord prevail against this band of ragtags, I mean, with this band of ragtag slaves against all these powers? As the book of Joshua opens, the Lord tells Joshua he'll give the Israelites every place Joshua sets his foot. This is a lot like the promise to Abraham when the Lord had him pace off the boundaries of the promised land back in Genesis 13. The boundaries, the Lord tells Joshua, are the broadest of all the various boundaries recorded in the Hebrew Bible, from the desert to Lebanon, all the way to the Euphrates, and all of the Hittite country west to the Mediterranean. The Lord repeats exactly what Moses said to Joshua earlier. Do not be afraid, Joshua. Do not be discouraged. I will be with you. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. I assume that's a reference to the book Moses had just written down prior to his death. The Lord says, meditate on it day and night so you'll be careful to do everything in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The Israelites are camped directly across the Jordan River from Jericho at a place called Shittim, which means Acadia trees. Joshua tells the people, get ready. Three days from now, we will cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. Then Joshua secretly sends two spies to enter the city of Jericho. This will be the Israelites' first place of attack. Okay, so another historical note here. There have been countless archaeological excavations at Jericho. People have bet their entire careers and reputations on finding evidence of the biblical events here. But they have been unable to find any such evidence in support of the story. It's simply not there. Archaeologically, Jericho was already a ruin by the time the Israelites showed up. They don't tell you these things in Sunday school because I think pastors feel like if they admit this, then it will bring the entire Bible into question. My view, as you know, is that the more you know, the better equipped you are to understand what is important about these texts. The less likely you are to be at the mercy of other people's interpretations and theological gymnastics. And the stronger your faith will be, not weaker at all, but stronger, because you will know how to approach these sorts of anomalies in ancient historical writing. We are neither going to discount nor discard the story of Jericho. 
nor are we going to go into a tailspin because our entire view of the Bible is going to disintegrate if the story doesn't match archaeological facts. No, instead, we're going to dig into the story to find out what wonderful gift the ancient writers are trying to convey to us. So Joshua's spies find a way to cross the Jordan River, even though this is in the springtime and the river is in spate. They sneak into Jericho and spy out the city's defenses. Then, as night approaches, they make their way to a brothel embedded in the city's outer wall. There, they are welcomed by the madam, a woman named Rahab. Rahab re realizes the men are Israelite spies. I wonder if their circumcision gives them away. But rather than betraying them to the king of Jericho, she says, I know your God has given this land to you. Everyone knows your God dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and we saw what you did to the Amorite kings of Sihon and Og. Our hearts melted when you destroyed them. We're all shaking in our shoes because we know we're next. The king of Jericho knows you're here in the city. The city gates have been shut and they're searching for you. It will only be moments before they come for you. I will not betray you if you will promise to spare me and my family when you attack Jericho. And the men say, if you'll help us escape, we will guarantee the safety of you and your family. And Rahab says, I'll lower you from the window on the outer wall. Don't run for the Jordan River. The king's soldiers will capture you there. Instead, run the opposite way, up into the hills to the west of the city. They'll never look for you there. Wait three days. By then, the soldiers will give up watching for you and will return to the city, and you can safely cross the Jordan. This sounds like a good plan to the men. They tell Rahab to gather her family into her house and hang a scarlet cord from her window. They will make sure the Israelite army knows to leave the house with the scarlet cord alone. So Rahab hides the men under piles of flax up on her roof. When the king's men bang on the door and demand that she turn over the spies, she tells them she had no idea they were spies and they've already left. If you hurry, maybe you can catch them, she says. As soon as the king's men leave, Rahab lets the spies down by a rope from her window in the outer wall and they escape to the hills. After three days, the spies return to Joshua and tell him all that happened including Rahab's news that the people of Jericho are terrified of the Israelites. So God uses this sex worker to feed vital military intelligence to the Israelites. This is not the first time that the history of Israel has turned on the courage of women, lowly women. Remember the women in Genesis. Remember Sifra and Pua in Exodus, the midwives in Egypt who defied Pharaoh's orders. These women's names are remembered by the writers. Rahab, the sex worker, becomes one of only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. She is named. She matters. Remember that the sex worker who is never called to repent of sexual sin, the sex worker who recognizes the hand of God when she sees it, the sex worker who places her trust in God rather than her own government, this traitor to her own people, this person who should be despised, this person is given an honored place, not only in the history of God's people, 
but in the royal lineage of King David and ultimately of Jesus himself. Jesus is descended from Rahab. God does not measure you the way other people measure you. So stop measuring yourself the way other people measure you and stop thinking that sex workers and traitors are by definition condemned sinners. They aren't. Neither are you. I don't care how soiled you think you are. That's not how God sees you. Look at yourself and others through new eyes. Open yourself to seeing the breathtaking beauty and value that God sees. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out for Jericho. The Ark of the Covenant goes first, carried by the priests. This is the mercy seat, the gold-covered box that has in it the manna, the stone tablets of the law, and Aaron's staff that budded. Joshua tells the people, be sure to stay a good half mile behind the Ark. Keep it in sight so you don't get lost, but make sure you don't get too close to it. The Lord tells Joshua, have the priests bring the ark to the edge of the Jordan River and then to actually step into the water with it. How scary that must have been. Joshua gathers the people and says, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and will drive out these nations ahead of you. The ark of the covenant will go into the water before you and the waters will stop flowing. They will be cut off and will stand in a heap until you cross over. And that is exactly what happened. The word here for cut off is the same word used when Zipporah circumcised Gershom as she and Moses and their little family were returning to Egypt. The word here for heap is the same word used to describe the waters at the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus. Passing through waters becomes a recurring motif both in Judaism and Christianity for a passage from one state of being to another. It's associated with God's miraculous hand in transformation and redemption. And cutting off is likewise a recurring motif of being set apart as God's own people, set apart for his purpose of blessing the entire world. These words are not used in this story by accident. When the whole nation of Israel finishes crossing over, the Lord tells Joshua to pick 12 men, one from each tribe, to go back to the middle of the Jordan River and pick up 12 stones and carry them to the place they would camp that night. And Joshua sets the stones up there by the Jordan as a reminder forever after. He tells the Israelites, when your children see these stones and ask about them, tell them the story of this day. Tell them how the Lord your God cut off the flow of the Jordan River so the Ark of the Covenant crossed on dry land. Joshua 4.13 says about 40,000 men armed for battle crossed over. Notice the number. It's still inflated, but it's nothing like the 600,000 the Torah kept throwing around. And it's still a lot larger than either the Egyptian army or the Hittite army in the Battle of Megiddo. So you can see the level of exaggeration we're likely seeing in the story. Nevertheless, no matter whether it's 40,000 or 600,000, all the Israelites are pretty impressed. This is Moses-level stuff. This generation does not remember the parting of the Red Sea, so it's important that they have this Red Sea experience of their own. And the Lord says to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant to come up out of the Jordan. And they come ashore, and immediately the waters of the Jordan rush back to flood stage as they were before.
the Israelites are in a liminal space, very similar to the night Moses and Zipporah camped out on their way to Egypt, in between Midian and Egypt. In fact, this very night, the Lord tells Joshua to prepare to circumcise all the men of Israel. You see, the Israelites as slaves were circumcised in Egypt, but no one had been circumcised since coming out of Egypt. And now this new generation is about to enter the promised land as God's chosen people, and they must be circumcised as an outward sign of the inward circumcision of their hearts. Circumcision is a separation from the world, a separation from other gods, and it must take place in the heart, and for the Israelite men, also in the body. And so the Israelites were circumcised there by the Jordan River at a place called Gilgal which means circle or wheel. They have come full circle. And the Lord says, you are no longer slaves. I have rolled the shame of Egypt away from you. And the Israelites stay at Gilgal until the men are healed. While they're camped here at Gilgal, they celebrate their first Passover since leaving Egypt. I think it's interesting that even though the law had been given 40 years ago, they understood it to be referring to festivals and remembrances they were to celebrate after they entered the promised land. And now the time has come. On the 14th day of the month, just as the Lord had specified all those years ago, the Israelites celebrate their first Passover in the promised land. And the very next day, they gather produce from the promised land and eat it roasted grain and unleavened bread. And that very day, the manna stops raining from heaven. Joshua, meanwhile, has gone ahead to spy out Jericho for himself. Suddenly, he's confronted by an armed man standing with a drawn sword. Joshua cries out, are you for us or against us? And the man answers, neither. I have come to you now because I am the commander of Yahweh's army. And Joshua falls to the ground. What message do you have for me, he says. And the commander of the Lord's army replies, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And Joshua does so. There's no more information given in the story. The message is not recorded. All we know is that this armed man is the commander of the Lord's army come to fight, and that he's not taking sides for or against anyone. He's simply doing God's will. I think this is astounding, and it immediately brings to mind several other places in Scripture where similar things occur. There's a couple of such incidents in the book of Daniel. Daniel repeatedly sees warriors who turn out to be angels. He describes one in Daniel chapter 10 as a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold. His body shines like a fine gemstone. His face is like lightning, his eyes like fire, and his arms and legs like burnished bronze. His voice is like the roaring sound of a crowd. And the man says to Daniel, I tried to come to you as soon as you started praying, but the angel of Persia fought me for three weeks. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I finally made it here to give you this message. So that description wasn't even of an archangel. That was just a regular old angel. Then later in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told that the archangel Michael is the one who protects Israel. Now that is interesting, and it might make you think that it's the archangel Michael who has appeared to Joshua here at Jericho, 
And perhaps that is who this is. But this armed man identifies himself to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. And there's one other possibility we should consider. We find the reference in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This, then, is the commander of the Lord's armies, as described in Revelation. This is the description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Most people think Jesus just floats down out of the clouds. But no, this is the description of his coming as commander of Yahweh's army. So is it an angel, the archangel Michael, or is it Jesus Christ, who, as we have seen, has been with the Israelites all along? The text does not say, I think it's Jesus. He says the same thing God said to Moses from the burning bush, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. But whether it is an angel or the angel of the Lord himself, the stage is set and the armies are ready for the Israelites to enter the promised land. We're going to break into our small groups now. The discussion this week is about what it might mean for your heart to be circumcised. Okay, like we're all back. Turn your microphones on unless there's noise in the background. And um, this was kind of a wide-ranging discussion just about kind of drawing all the threads together uh, that we've studied so far uh, and talking about what does circumcision actually mean? Circumcision of the heart and what is it? Is it, when does it happen? How does it happen? Um, Can it be reversed? Uh, Just, you know, what interesting things did you guys come up with as you were batting this around? I don't think we talked about the part, the when part, but um, we kind of came up with the idea that it's, um, like, we took the last verse that you paraphrased and um, was talking about how, um, Jesus did the same thing in scolding the Jewish um, religious leaders. And that um, the main point was it was um, that they were following the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. And that that's what circumcision of the heart actually means is that got it. You've got the spirit of the law. Gotcha. Uh, the ba- Gail, the basic question that that we floated around in our group, uh, is it equivalent to justification? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh, that would be a pretty good move if you can cover that in 15 minutes, but tell me in a nutshell what you come up with. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, basically, uh, pe- yeah, basically you, you're uh, making your heart pure 
pure to God, uh, you know, and equating to a physical sense of, of the pure of the you know physical part of, of circumcision. You're cutting away kind of the the bad parts of of the world uh, of the ungodly and, and leaving the pure of heart. And and uh, it is it is assumed you you are doing this uh, with a great intent and with with, uh, with you know with no holdback and basically I see that as uh, an acceptance of the gospel later in the New Testament and of receiving the Holy Spirit which equates to justification. Interesting. Wow. Okay. But I, I mean, I, I, all of this is great. What else did y'all talk about? Various folks. In our group, um, we were talking about um, the fact that, that um, circumcision, as you had mentioned, Gail, that, that there seems to be um, a connection, you know, a sort of a literal connection about cutting off. You know, when you were talking about cutting off the waters and and also the circumcision and that circumcision of the heart would also be seen as a cutting off of the things that were not oriented to god and and establishing that um that covenant again with god that we are going to to be a people who are cutting away the things that keep us from a relationship to God. Right. What else did you guys think about with respect to circumcision? Do you think it's something that can be reversed? We talked about that in our group and part of it is like we were talking about walking away from God. So does that reverse it? But then you get to thinking about how many times the Israelites walked away from God and God was like behind him going, hello, you know, I'm here. Remember me. And having sometimes to do dramatic things to get their attention. And I think that's the way the circumcision of your heart. Once you enter into that contract with God, God doesn't ever leave. You can walk away, but he's going to follow you or send one of his people after you and say, hey, you know, this way. Um, so I really don't think you can lose it. I would agree with that in part. I, you know, God's not going to walk away, but I think we can sometimes walk away from God. You're right. God is going to follow us, but, but we still can walk away or try to. Always be there for us to turn back to if we need to, if we want to. Yeah. I don't think he ever gives up on us. You know, to be clear, walking away equate to an undone. That's, that's a very important question. Oh, speak up, Ross. Repeat what you said. I said, to be clear, uh, you know, if people equate walking away to, uh, I mean, is undone equ equivalent to walking away? Um, I don't, I don't put equivalency to that. I hope nobody else does. What we were talking about is like, um, for circumcision, you're offering up yourself to be cut away. You know, the parts of your heart that are not godly. But in the process of circumcision, you could stop anywhere along the way. And you still have disease and, and you know, wrong thinking and all that still to contend with. So we can walk away, you know, from the process. Because sanctification is really lifelong until you die. 
So, I mean, and then we have free choice, like you were saying, Ross. So I really think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much larger process of, um, you know, applying the letter of the law, but it's, it's done in a loving way to bring you into uh, the fruit of the spirit. You know, it's, a, it's in relationship and the time spent under the operating table for us to be able to be completely, you know, cut away and completely processed into healing. I think it's just, it's a long process. It's not just something that happens. I think that's a great point, Andy, um, that, that this is a process. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think I've, I'm, I don't know if I've shared in this class or not. I, you know, memory spills out my ears, but, um, my view of, of Christianity shifted a number of years ago. I used, I was raised in a very conservative background and I used to think of, uh, Christians of God as having this circle around him and Christians were inside of the circle. And we spent a lot of time defining who was inside and outside of that circle and how thick was that circle? And could you get past that circle? And if you got in that circle, could you ever get out of that circle? And you know, all of that. And um, Dave Andrews, uh, a theologian in um, Australia, changed my mind about that model in one of his books that, that, that what the real reality is, is that God is, is here and we are all in some stage of moving towards him or away from him our whole life. Mm. There is no circle <laughs> and we're wasting our time. It's, it's like, it's like if we can be convinced that we need to spend a lot of time defining that circle and who's in and who's out, then we've been shut, shuffled off of, of what's important and what our real function is because our function is to come alongside each other. Um, when we perceive someone is moving away or struggling, you know, to come alongside them and and see what's going on and see if we can you know maybe give them a a, a nudge in a, a different direction walk with them you know for a while but we all we're not static like you said Andy we're we're all moving moving and um and so circumcision I think in I I found in my in my life that that I I think it's giving God Permission, permission to cut away the dead wood so that we yeah. can enter fully into life. Yeah. And I think that God does it. I think that our part is to be trusting God to do that, that to trust <clears throat> that God knows what is dead and should be cut away that we don't hold on to that stuff that we don't want him to cut away, you know, but we're trying to breathe life into ourselves. Um, there's a lot of that in our lives. And, and I find that, that uh, um, often I will let something go and pick it right back up again. <laughs> you know, um, I, I find it very wonderful uh, as, as kind of as the point Woody was making and um, that, that, that God gives us that choice. But like Renee was saying, he, he stays there with us just like in that new model of what Christianity, he stays with us. And if we, you know, go wandering off, off, he'll, he'll 
come alongside and speak to us. It does, you know, he'll send people to come alongside us. And, and like Ross's group was talking about, it's, it, it's a process. It's a lifelong process. But there's something very real about it and about um, the idea of being cut off. I, I think that Christians very often misconstrue the idea of being cut off from the world. I think that that terminology has to do with circumcision of the heart. That it is not that we are called to separate ourselves from, from people who are in some other stage of the journey coming towards God. That feeds right back into that big black circle kind of thinking, you know? I think that being cut off from the world is only referring to making a choice between which God do you serve. Mm, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I like that, Gail. I just, can I yeah. just say one more thing? Um, this, this was an image that came up in, in, in my head when our group were talking about this. Um, coming at it from a perspective of being a nurse, um, when when you think of helping a wound to heal, um, debriding, cutting away dead tissue, scar tissue, to expose fresh tissue that can heal, um, is that came to my mind as an image when we were talking about cutting away the things that are getting in the way of our relationship with God. And also the idea that in both physical and heart circumcision, we are placing ourselves in a very vulnerable position to allow someone else to do something that can be painful. Yeah, that's good. And we're extremely vulnerable, but that in the long run, there is a purpose for it. So in the case of physical circumcision, you know, the men are exposing their most vulnerable part um, and in the heart circumcision, we are exposing our inner selves to God and allowing God to debride whatever needs to be debrided. That is, that's a wonderful analogy. And it, and it speaks to the need to, to be gentle with ourselves and with each other through the process. And there's one, one more point I wanted to just uh, draw your attention to the Leviticus verse, kind of in the middle of the uh, scripture references I put in the study guide. And in the middle of that verse, God says, then when, they, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant. I will remember the land. And I want to just speak briefly to the pay for their sin phrase there in the middle and draw your minds back to the lesson um, about Korah and Dothan and about how the Holy Spirit burns up the dross in our lives. That's good. And how those, those, the, that story revealed specifically that those men's um, that those men paid for what they did with their lives, but the censors that they brought were then holy. And therefore, those men and their families were then holy 
It had been paid for. So this pain that we go through is, is something that um, even if we are like the man in the New Testament who has nothing left after he comes through that holy fire, we ourselves are not in danger. We ourselves are being debrided and coming naked as a baby, maybe, but we're still coming to God. We're never going to be circumcised in such a way that it kills us. We're never going to be circumcised in such a way that it, it destroys who we are. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's, this is a beautiful lesson to reflect on and to think about. And, um, and I'm so glad that we were able to be together and we, this is the end of class. Um, and as always, we can continue to chat if you'd like, but that's the end of class. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Gail, there was one thing that, that um, I had been sort of pondering for the last few days, just from other conversations that I've had, that that you struck a note on that as well when you were talking about um, how you know we were raised. Those of us who were raised in conservative um, churches and circles um, sort of have this concept of of um, being backslidden, being fallen away. You know, if if anyone was struggling with an aspect of their faith, that was seen as a negative thing, not having enough faith or or um, you know something negative. But you know, my daughter. Um, was confirmed in the Episcopal Church several years back. And when she went through confirmation class, she was telling me about this concept within the Episcopal Church that I find absolutely beautiful, which is this idea that when someone is struggling and having difficulty believing, that the larger body is there to believe on their behalf and to carry them until such time as they can believe again. Mm. Yes, and I absolutely. thought what a beautiful image of of the church and the body of Christ that we're there for you when you're struggling, and we'll just carry that torch for you until you can pick it up again yourself. Absolutely, and I think that that extends to to all kinds of situations, even uh, outside of faith. I have a friend right now who whose daughter is going through a terrible time. And, and the mother, my friend is furious, angry with the person who is causing the hurt and, um, and, and she's berating herself because she's not being a good Christian because she's angry, you know, and, and, and the gift to her is, you know what? we'll hold that space for you. You go ahead and be angry and we will hold the nice person you are for you until you're ready to come back into that. You know, there's just a lot that we do as a community to hold space and to hold the pieces of a person as needed, right? We have a son who's in his late thirties and um, unfortunately we've lost him to what I call the dark side. Um, Andy and I've been married for 22 years, but before that we were both married separately and we both came out horrible uh, divorces and my son scott uh has suffered as a result of that divorce 
And he's now in San Francisco. He's living very much with friends with benefits, quote unquote. And uh, he has he wants to have nothing to do with the Lord, even though when he was younger, he was baptized. Um, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was just loving God. But when we divorced, his mother and I, something inside him clicked. And now he's no longer, you know, there. And he almost mocks the fact that we're still believers, knowing, you know, that I've been remarried and so forth. And I just have to I just have to lean in God's word. You know, the book of Acts says that, you know, Acts chapter nine, you know, the promises to you and to, to as many as are, as are far off. And I just have to I have to believe God in spite of what I feel that his word will out trump my feelings every time. Yeah. And that my son, Scott, at some point down the road will be saved. It's just a matter of just holding him and holding him up in prayer and knowing that. Again, God is more concerned about his salvation than I am. And I have to I have to keep that constantly in front of my head. Yes, and it also that you were not given the power to prevent his salvation by your actions. Correct. That's his choice, not mine. Yeah, so yeah. true. We have to mm-hmm. we have to give each other to the Lord and trust the Lord in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we find that our perception of the situation in that other per- person's life was not actually the reality. It was just our perception. And so it's almost like the Lord changes us a little bit at a time and changes that other person a little bit at the time. And we meet at the altar. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. Thank you. Good insight. Yeah. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. All right, folks. I love you tons and bunches. And I will see you next week. Thank you, Gail. Bye. 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 Bye.